0: Hello. And welcome to Transatlantic History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. This is Brian in New York, U.S. of A. And with me, as always, all the way on the other side of the ocean is...
1: Lauren from Swansea in the U.K.
0: So this... how are you, Brian? Oh, Lauren from Swansea in the U.K. It is so good to talk to you again. This is, this is the first time we've actually spoken yes. since we recorded the Richie uh, Knuckles episode where you got a little giddy. Towards the end there. I did.
1: I did. I did. I, I I was just, like, so worried about that phone call that happened halfway through the recording.
0: I, uh, I don't know if you were just overtired, but somehow when a certain joke about a male part of the anatomy came up, no pun intended, you couldn't control yourself.
1: <laughs> but it was just, like, kind of, like... It was the bit where he kept repeating himself because he he thought you didn't get it, and I knew you got it, but you just didn't care.
0: No, and I kept saying all the other words. My mother uh, actually called me and says, "I'm so proud you put that thesaurus to good use." <laughs> and how about that mysterious phone call that came in that sounded like an emergency, like someone was dying? <laughs> uh, you know what it turned out to be, don't well, you? Oh,
1: I'd been washed to the hospital with COVID.
0: <laughs> no. All's it was, was apparently Billy Mitchell calling Richie up to tell him they had reinstated his Donkey Kong record. And he was at, there's nobody else who can hear me, can they? (laughs) You probably won't be able to reach me. (laughs) It was so dramatic. And it's like, dude, it's a Donkey Kong record. (laughs) I
1: think part of me was like, the FBI are involved somewhere.
0: (laughs) No, 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 just Guinness guinness and uh, donkey kong but uh that was uh that was
1: another good kind of guinness
0: yeah that's true now you know that was uh, the legendary <laughs> billy mitchell from the uh the, the the documentary that started the whole redoing of the arcade craze before they did the king of arcades with richie you know they did that um documentaries um fistful of quarters the donkey kong documentary focusing on billy mitchell so, people, that was a two-for-one. We got Billy calling in on that show, and uh, it was uh, it, it was something. Well,
1: congratulations for Billy for having his record reinstated. That's
0: fun. Yeah, apparently they reinstated not only yeah. his Donkey Kong record, but his Pac-Man record as well. Ooh. Yeah.
1: That, that's amazing.
0: So that was the big uh, mystery. That was the big, there's nobody who can hear you. There's nobody else who can hear me, is there?
1: <laughs> it is beautiful, though.
0: Yeah, and that would be the most memorable part of the episode if it wasn't for Lauren having a complete breakdown on the air over the word (laughs) cock.
1: Okay, apparently it's still funny. I think that was even better than than the Tumble episode where I nearly lost control.
0: Yeah, because this time you didn't nearly lose control. You did lose control.
1: I lost control. i i have to say something i'm not sorry
0: no (laughs) it's okay i uh i I don't blame you
1: so talking about the tumble tea episode do we have a date yet because i'm really excited to talk some more
0: no i don't have a date yet tumble
2: Um, tea
0: like i said i've been so busy juggling other guests around and stuff and and i know that you know we're pretty friendly with neil and mike and we can uh we can kind of get them to work around our schedule a little bit and you know a lot of these other guests i've been getting we're uh we're working around their schedule, so um, it shouldn't be too long. Uh, we'll do another Tumblety episode, and um, yeah, we're going to be doing uh, some fun episodes coming up in the near future. I've got a few more lined up, got a yes. couple interesting guests, different topics. Um, we're going to be all over the board on this. So
1: I th- I think we need to sort of um, say something to the listeners, because they may have been exep- um, expecting our Turi King episode. So yes. So I think... Yes, Yes. so unfortunately some uh, university commitments come up because in the UK um, in September, the learning is going to be part um, online and part face-to-face. So I think that it was just getting together some of the online content together ready for next semester, which has sort of delayed our being able to catch up with Turi for
0: now. Yeah, uh, online stuff for that. Plus there's some... um... Community stuff that the university is involved in, the University of Leicester, that she has kind of put on a uh, committee for that, you know, she didn't realize she was going to be. But we have been speaking. I have spoken to her. We're still emailing. There definitely will be a show. She will be coming on. And um, she looks forward to it. It's just things have to calm down a little bit because... As you said, you know, they're gearing up in the U.K. right now for the upcoming semesters because really no one knows how things are going to be handled now.
1: No. They're trying to cover all eventualities because um, in Wales, there um, we do have some applicants from England coming to the universities that we're not even quite sure to travel down. So they might get into university, but for the first couple of weeks, they might not be able to travel down. So we're just—they're just preparing for every eventuality. I'm lucky because I'm in Wales, and I'm not too far away. <laughs> yeah.
0: But uh, a special message from Turi to the listeners: she's sorry that she had to postpone, but it was not a cancellation; it was just a postponement, and she will be on the show soon. Yes. You know, Brilliant. I think we, I think we should go to our day in history fairly early today because I I, I know myself. <laughs>
1: yes, we should because we've got such a great.
0: And I think that I might keep this guest on the line Well, yeah, for I'm, just, I'm just
1: expecting you to have a massive geek out again.
0: Oh, it's going to be a total geek out. So uh, we'll do our... Yes. Come on, give me your deepest voice.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure that it's going to end up having to be cut in two or something like that. Probably. I know you.
0: Yeah. So come on, Lauren, give me your deepest Today in History voice.
1: Oh, is it my turn to say it? It's your okay. turn. <clears> okay. <throat> today in
0: history... <laughs> I did it. You did. You have to do it again. Nope. No, that was good. Now, I know technically it's my turn to go first in today in history, but I'd kind of like you to go first, and and you'll you'll see why when it's my turn.
1: Okay. Well, mine is from nine thirty. The world's oldest parliament, the Icelandic Parliament, the Althing, um, is established.
0: Wow. Uh, nine thirty. Yes. Oh. I can't believe Iceland was the uh, the first parliament.
1: Yeah, I thought it was I thought it was the UK until I came across that.
0: I guess you really do learn something every day.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: My today in history is kind of a twofold one. Um, oh. A, as some of our listeners know, I actually have a book coming out very soon, co-authored with. Dan Murphy, and it's about the history of pro wrestling. So today in history, June 23rd, 1939, the great Lou Thez loses the NWA heavyweight championship title to Pro Football Hall of Famer Bronco Nagurski in 1939. That's interesting. Now, do you know why uh, it's kind of odd that uh, he lost that title in thirty nine? Do you, uh, have any idea when Luthez's last wrestling match was, Lauren? Nope. December twenty-sixth,
1: nineteen ninety. Really? Wow.
0: Yeah, Luthez wrestled to nineteen ninety. He was seventy-four years old and uh, possibly the most accomplished and revered wrestler of all time. He's featured quite prominently in the book, too, which will be available in the spring, so you know, once it comes out, we'll give you more information. Maybe I'll, I'll get my co-author on it. We'll do a show on it. But the other reason I chose that as Today in History is wrestling really got its start, uh, especially in America, on the sideshow circuit. Uh, you know, the strongmen eventually went into uh, putting on strength exhibitions and wrestling exhibitions. And that leads us directly into tonight's guest. And, oh, my God, I am so excited about this, Lauren. I am going to geek out today because literally geek out because... Uh, tonight's guest is, is, is someone I've been a fan of for so many years. and
1: You're going to have a lot to speak about tonight, then.
0: If you thought I was pretty geeky during the uh, uh, Dr. Womack Beatles episode, I'll just wait till I get talking to Todd Robbins.
1: Oh, my. Well, no, no, there, there was Lawrence Krauss as well.
0: Yeah, that that was more Physics Dave than myself, but...
1: Oh, I think you were the real geek there,
0: too. Yeah, I geeked out a little bit there. I admit, you know, I book a lot of these people because they're, they're, they're people that I'm interested. They're heroes of mine, people that I admire and look up to and have for many years. And, you know, I've been a fan of Todd Robbins, personally, as long as I can remember. First time I ever saw him perform, I became a fan. But before we get going with the show, I think we should give our listeners our contact information.
1: Do you want to go first with the email and Twitter?
0: Yes, you can email us at trans.history.rambling at gmail.com. And that's singular, rambling. trans.history.rambling at gmail.com. Or you can reach us on Twitter at TA History or History TA. I guess it works either way.
1: You can also find us on Facebook at History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. And... On Instagram at History Ramblings.
0: All right, now that that's out of the way, all right, Lauren, and it's time to bring on our guest. And and you know how excited I am. I've been talking about this, you know, for weeks ever since he agreed to do this show. Um, our guest tonight, Mister Todd Robbins, is not only one of the uh, preeminent sideshow performers alive today, but he's a historian, and he's really the living embodiment of the sideshow and its legacy and. I first became aware of him back in the uh, those wonderful 1980s when I first saw him perform, and, and I was hooked. From that moment on, I was a super fan, and I checked out everything he did, and, um, you know, he's done audio commentaries on DVDs, and he's written books, and he's been in documentaries, and uh, he has his own show on Investigation Discovery, and, and, you know, he wrote a play with Teller from Penn and Teller, and uh, that was adapted into a film, and... He's just one of the most remarkable and amazing people you could ever encounter, and I am so thrilled he agreed to come on the show. So, ladies and gentlemen, step
2: right up and meet Mr. Todd Robbins. Oh, it's a pleasure, pleasure to be part of this, pleasure. Yes, I am the most famous man that no one's ever heard of.
0: Well, anybody who knows me has heard of you. (laughs)
2: That's good, that's good, that's good. Well... It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Sideshow is one of the things that uh, uh, my old friend Johnny Mia, who is the last of the old Sideshow banner painters, uh, we we got talking about the Sideshow and things, and he would be telling stories, and he said, I love this business like it was a person. And that kind of sums up my feeling, too. It is a strange wonderful warm quirky uh dysfunctional uh little corner of popular entertainment and uh i've loved the every moment that i've uh, spent uh wallowing around in this and it, it really is a
0: misunderstood art form yeah i mean it really gets a bad rap especially in today's society
2: well, here's, here's the curious thing about it is that, you know, we're talking about the sideshow. And when I say that word sideshow, it conjures up an image in people's mind of, you know, a tent and the banners out front and the barker. We'll get to that phrase later. Uh, the barker out front and strange people standing on the little stage out there in a crowd and this nasally voice saying, come on in and see the fire eater, the sword and all the other acts and attractions. And yet... I'm willing to wager that 90%, uh, perhaps even more, of the people that are listening to this have never seen a real sideshow, live and in person. We have this image of it. We've had absolutely no contact with it whatsoever, other than occasionally being depicted in movies and TV and things like that.
0: And unfortunately, usually not a very flattering depiction in films.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's been painted sort of as the villain of show business, uh, and they use, uh, you know, the, 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 the myth of the elephant man is uh, a lovely, lovely uh, example of this, of this poor misshapen person who's being beaten and uh, uh, you know t- abused by the evil showman that's making a buck off of, uh, uh, of them while wow. They're you know living like kings, and that's that's not the reality. Yeah, there there was there were a number of instances of of uh, you know people taking advantage of other people, but really not any more than any other industry, uh, and in many ways a lot less uh, because of the nature of the business. Uh, it is. And we can just jump into this right now and kind of dispel the, the whole exploiting freaks myth. Uh, as I say it did happen and yet it was the minority because the fact is it's a hard life. As my old friend Melvin Burkhart, who created an act that became known as the human blockhead, he would you know, as he was pulling a nail out of the out of his nose, a huge six inch railroad spike. He would pull it out and he'd look at the audience and say, that's a hard way to make an easy living. (laughs) I love it. And and that kind of sums up the world of the sideshow. Because for the most part, it's a nomadic uh, existence. You would leave uh, your winter quarters, oftentimes in Gibsonton, Florida, down uh, south of Tampa, uh, somewhere late spring usually right around the 1st of May, and you'd go off uh, to travel with a sideshow that was either playing with a circus, uh, a traveling circus, or a, a carnival, or occasionally you'd, you'd, you, you might have a gig uh, in a place, a permanent place, an amusement park somewhere, like Coney Island, an amusement area like that, and you would go off, uh, for those that were traveling, and you would it was a hard life. You, even though you were a performer, you would help set up the tent and all the equipment, you know, it from trucks or earlier days from uh, railroad cars, put it on uh, a wagon, take it to the lot, set it up, driving stakes. Uh, and you got to remember, this is the summer uh, for the most part that all of this is done, driving stakes into the ground with sledgehammers, uh, raising the tent, getting it all set up, getting cleaned up as much as possible, and then looking all beautiful and full of wonderment as you then do your show uh, numerous times for the crowds that have come out to experience it all. Uh, Again, the tents were not air-conditioned. And then after you've worked the hour after hour after hour after hour after hour, you then grab whatever sleep you can. Uh, Oftentimes in the old days, they would basically camp underneath the stage in the uh, in the sideshow tent uh and then you you cook your meals or grab uh, whatever you can in the cook tent if there was that was provided and uh if you were working a fair you might be there for a week but oftentimes times uh with the circuses after you finished instead of turning in for the night you would tear everything down, load it up, jump onto whatever traveling conveyance you were using, a truck or uh, the the railroad, go to the next town and do it all over again the next day, every day jumping, maybe sticking around in larger areas for a day or two, but then moving onward, moving onward moving onward and then end of uh, uh, sometime in October, maybe beginning of, of November if you did a, a southern sweep, Uh, and the weather was a little bit warmer, you'd finish off and then have a couple of months off uh, there in your winter quarters and then turn around and do it all over again. And that's, I mean, that life alone, if it does not have some reward, and the money was never great, if there's not some other reward for doing this, there's no reason to be doing it. So the idea of people being forced to do this is very much a myth. Everyone that was there was there uh, because they wanted to be there. There was a sense of camaraderie. There was money to be made. There was a chance of just being in show business. Yes, it was one of the lower ends of show business, but it was show business nevertheless. And when you get out there and you perform for the public and you do what you do and you make your money... And you see the smiles and you hear the laughs and the applause. And the the thing, the other thing is at the end of the act, they often sold a little souvenir. And often it was a little postcard that had the, the, your picture on it and the back had your true life story, usually made up completely, complete fiction, but that's beside the point. And when you had some person who had been working in the fields Uh, day in and day out. And this was their one day of the year to experience something extraordinary that would keep them going for the next year. And when they gave you, you know, their nickel or dime so they could take a picture of you home, it did something for your soul that just kept you going to the next spot. And for many people, it was something that they did for decades and decades. someone like Melvin Burkhardt, he performed for 70 years, more than 70 years, working on a sideshow. So the idea of that this is some ugly, awful, abusive uh, life, it was hard, but it was not that. No, and it's
0: interesting you brought up The Elephant Man, because on one of our early episodes, we had Joe Mungovan Viger, who was the... um official biographer now of joseph merrick the elephant man and you know the one who discovered his his um burial site Mm -hmm. and one of the reasons she was on was you know partially to dispel some of the myths yeah you know how the truth is it was he himself who you know put himself in the sideshow and you know by the age of 26 he'd actually had enough money to retire before he was robbed yeah yeah you know, the sad reality is um, the years he spent as a performer on the sideshow were probably amongst the best of his life.
2: And, and you know, the, the other thing is, that the, the dynamic is that when he was there living on the hospital grounds, they very much used him as a fundraiser for the, for the hospital the, to make them look good. Uh, so there was more exploitation going on there than uh, when he was uh, performing.
0: I mean, there are actually contemporary quotes of his saying, you know, I'm being placed on display naked like an animal and I'm not even being paid for it. Exactly. Yeah. Another favorite of mine was, you know, there's a report he actually asked a staff member at the hospital, how do you think I'm going to look in formaldehyde? Because he knew even upon death he was going to be displayed.
2: Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But he knew He knew the function.
0: Now, you said something um in a documentary that was part of uh, bonus content on the DVD release of Todd Browning's freaks, Mm -hmm. which was so perfect because they were discussing, uh, exploitation in the sideshow and sideshow performers. And you pointed out that all showbiz is exploitation.
2: Oh yeah. I mean, whether you're watching any of the got talent, uh, uh, competitions, um, that's complete exploitation they're they're bringing these people on for no money to do their act and then sit there in judgment uh and rake in the producers are raking in big bucks and often these acts are being brought on for cannon fodder to be you know the 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 fodder for ridicule uh and that's complete exploitation and if you see any of the contracts that these that show has uh, they, if any of the performers end up doing well, they get a piece, a huge piece of whatever you make from your newfound fame.
0: Yeah, actually, a majority of what you earn. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, all, the, 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 anyone that goes out there and sings a song or dances or tells a joke, the reason you're seeing them is because someone is exploiting them, and it's it's that. Exploitation is not a four-letter word in my book. The fact is, someone it's a buy-sell. Someone is saying, what do you need? Uh, And I am now going to take this. I'm going to reward you, give you what you need, and I'm now going to make more money than you are off of this. Uh, It's it's a time-honored thing, and it happens time and time again. Anyone who produces any kind of a product, any craftsman, any, anyone who grows anything and sells it to someone who then passes it on, if there's an, any middleman, they're, they're being exploited. And that, that's just the way it works. It is not a negative thing unless you truly are being taken advantage of, unless someone is using power and, uh, to make you do something you don't want to do.
0: And there is such a difference. And and I think that's a line that people don't truly understand.
2: Yeah. And, it, you know, it's a, it's a speech I do time and time again addressing the uh, the acts of the sideshow, and specifically the sideshow freak, that in our world, freak is not a bad word. Uh, it is just, it has no negative connotation. It is just descriptive of the the person who was born different and traditionally in the sideshow these are the people that uh were the best paid people in the show because they gave the show credibility they were the ones that people paid money to come and see yes people enjoyed the sword swallower and the fire eater and the tattooed man and things like that or tattooed women um and yet, it was the it was the the monkey girl, it was the alligator man, it was the world's tallest man, the, the half girl, it was these people with a misshapen anatomy that uh, were being presented. That and it, the, the other side of it is that when you saw the banner, they they were very cartoonish for a reason. They did not want to adequately and realistically depict. Uh, what was what you see on the inside? Instead, they were done in a larger-than-life, cartoonish uh, depiction, because the the turtle boy didn't have the body of a turtle and a head of a human. It was someone who had foreshortened arms and legs, and looked, you know, looked like a turtle. Basically, he had an anatomy that was you know kindred to a turtle, and. When you went in, your your first impulse was, "Oh, that's that's not what you expected," and it was then up to the showman who was presenting the show and the act to do something that was a bait and switch. If you know that that phrase, which is you think you're buying one thing and you get another, and usually bait and switch is that you're getting less than you 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 paid for. This was a whole different thing. It was a, a bait and switch up. And that when you experience the freak act, you often saw someone demonstrate not how strange they were, but how normal they were. Uh, They were often do something that showed the the human spirit's uh, remarkable ability to overcome any obstacle. And was something that you couldn't imagine yourself doing. For instance, uh, uh, the armless girl sitting there, and while she's talking about how she's how, how she came to be like this. Was she born like this? Was it through an accident? Uh, and she'll be sitting on stage crocheting with her feet. And then we'll pick up one of her postcards and a, a pencil and say, if anyone would like one of these autographed cards, I'd be more than willing to sell it to you. Thank you for your time. And people would applaud and flock to get one of these things. And they're uh, Penmanship—I—I can't say handwriting because that's not accurate—but the penmanship, penmanship was often much better than uh, the person who was was uh, paying and for the postcard to take home. Uh, And it again, it was just the a sense of the extraordinary. And it was not about pity. It was not about being trotting these people out to be gawked at and fodder for ridicule. No, it was. That this was extraordinary. So that the experience was something that people would remember as as long as they lived and would make people then want to come back to the sideshow the next year when you came back through the same route. How are you gonna top it? Yeah. Yeah. And like you
0: pointed out, the freaks were the sideshow royalty.
2: Well, yeah, and the irony of it is, and this is the, the thing that that kind of crushes any argument about exploitation. Uh, is that so, many of them made so much money that they ended up going into business for themselves? They, after working for someone else, they ended up st- framing their own show and going out with their own sideshow and being sort of the stars on it and hiring the uh, the swaller and the fire eater and things like that uh, to flesh out the show. But they were working for themselves, so who was doing the exploitation there? Uh, yeah, where 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 it gets a little we get into a whole gray area that is very much uh, up for debate is when you deal with people that were mentally deficient or the, the acts that were known as as the pinheads, uh, microcephalic, people that, that had some sort of diminished capacity. Uh, and they were often depicted as completely fictional, that they were, you know, the last of the Aztec or they were from outer space or some other, uh, you know, forgotten mythic uh, people. Uh, and, you know, that those are lies. They were often just from, you know, Brooklyn or, you know, it's down south somewhere. And uh, again, you know, I, I, a lot of the sideshow was Reality at its most amazing and fiction at its most entertaining. And that's, you know, when you would read in a dime novel about the wild man of Borneo and then you saw him in the sideshow live and up close. And it was actually a guy in a, you know, a, a wig and animal skins and mud on his face and, you know, growling and and gnawing on uh, on some bones it, it it didn't it, it didn't matter it's as, if, as long as the story is good it doesn't matter how real it is uh, it was all about entertainment and about making an extraordinary experience for the people who paid their dime to come in and see the show
0: and everyone had a
2: good time yeah and and the other you know other side of it is that the people that if you like uh, there are some very famous uh, folks one one of them is Schlitzie who was in the movie Freak. I was actually going to bring up Schlitzie. I love Schlitzie. Yeah, Schlitzie uh, was a man and was dressed uh, in a put in a dress because uh, Schlitzie didn't have the capacity to be toilet trained, so it was always in a diaper. And it made taking care of Schlitzie and keeping Schlitzie clean easier if uh, he was in a skirt. Simple as that. And that kind of ties into the fact that the showman... Who presenting someone like that are now the guardian and caretaker of these people. And again, it ties back to what I originally said that they need to not treat them badly, but treat them better than sometimes they treat themselves. That, you know, when things are thin, these are the people that are fed uh, and you take care of them first and foremost. Not because they're your meal ticket, it's because of that sense of humanity. That uh, is was necessary for all the great showmen if they want to have a career year in and year out, Uh, because there's a thing called burning a lot, which is a carny phrase for, you know, doing something so that you at the least uh, people don't trust you. And at the worst, they want to kill you because you've been you've done something wrong. And it is such a tight knit community, the carnival and the sideshow. You don't do that. You don't last very long. Uh, if you burn the lot, because word gets around fast, and people want nothing to do with you.
0: You know, and speaking of Schlitzy, I remember reading about Schlitzy that you know, anybody who ever worked with uh, with him or, or knew him said that he just loved performing. Yeah. And when his caretaker um, passed away, and Schlitzy had to be put into a home, um, his condition deteriorated to, to almost the point of dying. Yeah and someone convinced him to let them put Schlitzie back in show business and it like, literally perked him right back up.
2: Yeah, uh, Bill, uh, Bill Unz, who was known as the Baron, who was a swordswaller, happened to be in a uh, nursing home uh, visiting someone and saw Schlitzie, who had worked with, you know, in years past. And word went out, and Sam Alexander, who was a, sh- a sideshow showman, uh, came there and said, you know, I'm Schlitzie's... Cousin or whatever said whatever to get Shlitsy out of there, and Shlitsy spent the golden years back performing around the, the people uh, uh, that Shlitsy loved. Shlitsy, everyone said that Schlitzi was just a joy to be around, always happy, always smiling, uh, and just uh, just filled with childlike glee. Uh, it was the default for Schlitzy, and it, it was just a joy to be a, have in on a show, and everyone takes care of each other, uh, and someone like uh, someone like Schlitzy. So uh, you know that 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 kind of sums up the, that it was a very very hard life that was filled with good people.
0: And that's just one of the reasons I'm so glad that Todd Browning got to
2: make the film Freaks. Yeah, it's, it, again, it's, it was misinterpreted. I, I just wonder when Todd Browning finished the film and was happy with what he had done and then the fallout came because people completely misinterpreted the whole thing. The freaks in the film are the normal people. All the, the regular circus people, the townspeople, uh, are the ones that are just hideous, awful, monstrous folks. Whereas the sideshow community, the scenes that, uh, you know, the the little character scenes are the the Siamese twins, the, the Hilton sisters having a date and uh, getting married, the bearded woman and the skeleton man having a baby. Uh, and, you know, Johnny acted doing, who had no lower half of his body, doing laundry. The, you know, the the normalcy of it all, showing that these were true people, looked beyond their disabilities, which was the real theme of the sideshow. And it was something that Todd Browning understood because his background was, or his early days, was on the carnival. Uh, and he understood, he learned about show business and then went into movies and brought that and often touched upon the the world of the sideshow and a number of his a uh, number of his films and uh, fortunately he did because it really it it gives us a real glimpse into the reality uh, the look and feel of what these shows were
0: no absolutely and and, and again it's one of the few surviving um, documentations of many of these performers
2: yeah because the other side of it is that it this was live show business and it, it was very transitory. And it was meant to be experienced. And then you move on. And so other than it showing up in various little scenes and in a few as the, the center of a few uh, uh, movies, uh, we really wouldn't know exactly. We have photos. And that's another story. Edward Kelty. Um, and the photos, the remarkable photos he, he took. And uh, it's, it's sort of these, these flukish things that allow us that have lived after the fact to look back and try, try to get a sense uh, of what it was all about. Uh, Kelty, who I, I mentioned, was a banquet photographer, uh, which was a field uh, in major places, for the most part, urban uh, centers like Chicago and New York and Los Angeles and, and uh, St. Louis and places like that, that had fraternal organizations uh, that would have an annual banquet. And these places were in these big catering halls. And these photographers would come with these huge cameras, these giant cameras. They looked look like a clown prop. They were so large. And the reason they were so large, is they had a large plate in them and they could take a picture of the entire room. And where the money was to be made is that these photographers would take this one picture of everyone sitting at the table, looking at the camera, um, or everyone standing up in, in, a, in mass, a crowd of people, taking this this wide uh, picture and then selling copies to everyone in the room that wanted one uh, later on after, after the fact that it was developed. And so you took one picture and you sold it many, many times, and it was very profitable. The problem was there was a lot of competition, and uh, Kelty was a, the, one of these photographers, and he was in, he wanted to branch out, and so he started thinking, well, where where are there large groups of people that I can take a picture in one picture and sell it to everyone who wants one? And he was in New York City. And he went, oh, you know, there's those sideshows out in Coney Island. And so during the 1920s, he would go out and take a cast photo out in front of the shows of the people in the shows, standing off front, all posing. Uh, and these photos are great. The other thing he he took a picture of the sideshow of Ringling Brothers and Barnum Bailey Circus when it came to Madison Square Garden. Every year it would start its season in uh, March indoors at Madison Square Garden and the sideshow was in the lower level of the old Madison Square Garden. And he would get the whole sideshow crew and take a photo of them. And then he started to branch out and went, oh, you know, instead of just a sideshow, I could take the whole circus. And so he traveled around and took these great photos that are being you know, used today by historians going, oh, the, that performer was on that show during this, this year, and then went over to that show for this year, and we kind of know who was doing what and where and uh, and, and when, uh, because of these uh, photos. And again, it was just this flukish thing that if he hadn't had that thought and done what he did, we wouldn't have this wonderful record.
0: And, and it's amazing. We're so lucky to have it. Uh, I mean, nowadays, everyone takes everything like this for granted because, you know, we all carry a phone that's got a camera on it and everything's documented.
2: Yeah. I mean we we're in we're in a very much very much an information age the irony of it is we have uh more information ever and and less knowledge than we've ever had because there's just such a glut of uh raw data uh, out there to be uh, twisted and and turned around
0: yeah that's something that that
2: baffles me and I always
0: feel like I'm getting too old when I say these darn kids and they got all the information and they don't know nothing and, but like like the uh, photographs and the movie Freaks, you know, and we were also so lucky to have someone like you around who uh, has such a vast interest and knowledge uh, of the of the subject, and uh, you know, also your appearance on television and, and movies and documentaries and, and your live performances. I mean, you're one of the premier performers uh, in the world of sideshow. Can you, uh, you know, tell our listeners how? You came to be involved in sideshow performing.
2: Well, I'm I'm what's known as a working actor. The the way it turned out was that uh, I got involved in magic. I grew up in Southern California, uh, in a a suburban community out there that was clean and safe and quiet and everything my parents wanted. because uh, they grew up during the Depression and fought World War II. And so when they rolled into the 50s and 60s, they wanted stability and comfort. Uh, but growing up in stability and comfort is not the most exciting thing. And I was looking for something extraordinary. I, I, I you know, the, the great orchestra conductor, uh, Eugene Ormandy of the Philadelphia Symphony, we, he was conducting the the orchestra and he... Uh, during a rehearsal and he stopped them and he he said what's that sound I'm not hearing he, he knew something was off but he didn't know what it was and I kind of felt that growing up that there was something missing but I didn't know what it was uh, until I walked into a magic shop when I was about 10 years old it was in this scrubby little, little strip mall uh, just outside of the area the uh, neighborhood where we lived and it was just You know, filled with spray cases and bookshelves filled with props and books and things all designed to deceive the senses. And this was so out of the ordinary that I got involved in that. But I really wanted to experience real magic. I wanted to not experience. I I appreciated the tricks and how they did uh, deceive, but it was all fake. Uh, and I wanted something real. I wanted to experience the extraordinary. And a side show came to our neighborhood when I was about 12 through about 13 years old. And it was part of a carnival. And I went in and see the, the master of magic. Uh, that was one of the acts that was presented on the outside uh, by the outside talker. The correct term is outside talker. People say Barker. But the correct term is outside talker. The guy who literally talks you into buying a ticket uh, to come and see the show. And the spiel he does is known as a bally, and it's short for bally who. And i that has a kind of really interesting little origin of where that term comes from and that and that, that tradition of that sales pitch. But I went in to see the master of magic, and I was disappointed the magic act wasn't that great. And it was only later that I found out that the magic act is a sideshow, and the form of the sideshow was there'd be like a, a large, tall thin catwalk-like stage that would be along the long end of the tent, the back of the tent. And the acts were all standing there or, you know, presented up there. And the reason it was so high is so that there were no seats in the side. So you come in and stand and it would start down at one end with the magic act. And then it would jump to the middle with the sword swallow and then come back down to the one end for, uh, you know, the pain-proof man, and then the fire would be at the far end. And what that means is the crowd keeps moving, and because it keeps moving, it keeps shifting, so no one is in the front the whole time. No one is in the back the whole time. So, and because it's very high up, you can see what's going on on the stage. So I went in to see the the Master of Magic, uh, but he was like the, the actor usually was, was at the beginning and it was this sort of elastic act that could be done while people are coming in and filling the tent and as soon as the first person comes in the magician starts working and when the crowd has all come in for that show the ticket taker would give a sign to the magician and he would then finish up his last trick and then introduce the next act so if you saw you know, 10 minutes of magic, you saw the magic act. If you saw 30 seconds of magic, you saw the magic act. And that was one of the 10 acts in a 10 in one, 10 acts in one show. So it was just a filler act. till everyone came in and then the rest of the acts, the rest of the show could go on. And then when, once you get down the end, then the magician would start up again. Everyone would leave and the process would continue on and there would be a continual grind for the rest of the day. So I went in, and he was kind of going through the paces. But it was the rest of the show, the sword swallow, the fire eater, the person that was laying down on a bed of nails. This is what captured my imagination, because I realized this was real. There was no trickery to it. The fire was hot. The swords were solid. The nails were sharp and real, made out of metal. And because of this, it just instilled in me that, you know, what I was seeing was extraordinary ability beyond the capability of the average person. And that is a pretty good definition of real magic. And after seeing the show, I went back to the magic shop that was in the neighborhood there. And there were a bunch of old timers who used to hang out there like a little clubhouse on Saturday afternoons. And these guys were ancient, they had to be forty years old. (coughs) Oh dear. Uh, and, uh, the, you know, they would sit there all afternoon, um, doing card tricks for each other, smoking unfiltered camel cigarettes and, uh, and telling lies to each other. And I used to hang out there and kind of soak it all in, uh, the card tricks and the secondhand smoke and most of the stories. Cause that was the thing I'd loved uh, so much. Cause they I was going to say, I
0: was yeah. going to say it sounds perfect. Uh, except yeah. luckies yeah. were better than camels.
2: Yeah, well, you know, whatever. The irony of it is, there was a little intervention one one time. Uh, I I came home from the sideshow, and my parents took me in the living room, and sat me down, and we said, and they said, you know, you've had a lot of bronchitis, and you shouldn't be doing this. Like, what? We you think, we know what we're talking about? I said, what? So you should not be smoking cigarettes. I said, I don't smoke. They say, don't lie to us. I said, I don't smoke cigarettes. So we come home from the magic shop reeking of cigarettes. Uh, so you've obviously, and I said, no, no, no. And I, they walked into the place and then smelled, the smoke went, okay, all right, fine. And in you know, those days, secondhand smoke was not an issue as it is today. Uh, so, but yeah, they thought, uh, they thought I was, you know, a, a nicotine fiend. Uh, but anyway, so I, I would sit there and just hear all these stories of, you know the, and the great thing about show business is that when you meet someone who's been in the business for a while, that is a real professional, uh, and they get together with other people who are professionals. They start telling stories, which it's what's known as jackpots, and it comes from the old pirate term of cutting up jackpots or cutting up, you know, uh, 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 traces, uh, which is when you you pull a job. Uh, And you have a treasure, you, you know, here's one for you and one for you and one for me and one for that's cutting up the the jackpot. And um, so they would sit around and tell these stories. And that was the that was the thing that, you know, I just loved all this. And when you are around a pro talking to another pro, they don't say, oh, I did a show three weeks ago and it was so great. There was a standing ovation and it was so wonderful. No, they say, Listen. I, I finished the show and I thought they were going to tar and feather me. They hated that show so much. And it's all about, you know, crashing and burning, but living to uh, fight another day. That's what the, the best stories are about. Uh, and those are the ones that just, because everyone that, that is a pro uh, can sympathize with it. And the only time they can really talk about it with and have someone understand it is when they're talking to other pros. But anyway, so they would, tell these stories. And I walked in there and I got in a little late since I'd been there at that, that carnival the a sideshow. And one of the guys said, where have you been? And I regaled him with what I experienced. And then I, you know, uttered words that changed my life, which I said, I, you know, I'd really like to learn how to do all that stuff. And it turned out one of the magicians had worked in a sideshow and he knew how to eat fire. His name was Ralph Maccabee. You'd never heard of him. Uh, he was just this kind of, you know, general practitioner magician. And uh, admittedly, his best trick was to walk down the street and turn into a saloon. But that's another story. Um, And but he was, you know, he would come out and do sophisticated sleight of hand and then often finished off his act by eating fire because he'd learned how to do that when he'd worked at a sideshow in Texas. And he also knew how to do the blockhead act, hammering a nail into his nose, which he never performed because his nose was rather Strawberry in color and and uh, condition, and he didn't really want to draw attention to it because the bottle had done that to it, and <laughs> so, but he did. He, when I said those words, he said, "You want to learn how to do the dip, the difficult stuff, the dangerous stuff, huh, kid?" And when yeah, and he said, "I can teach you, just just don't tell your parents." And to a thirteen-year-old kid, that those, those are golden words. I mean, the hook was sunk very deep. And so he taught me how to do this. And then the the, the funny thing he says it's gonna cost you. And I go, okay, well how much you know, how expensive it's gonna be? He said, I don't want money. I'm like, oh dear. Oh dear. Boy, that's definitely not something you wanna hear. Yeah, this is not good. These, you can just and yet the irony of it was the way I paid for my lessons, my sideshow lessons was that from Basically, Thanksgiving until New Year's, he had all these Christmas shows for the Elks Club and, and the Rotary Club and, and things like that and some, you know, businesses that would have their Christmas party. And he would do the magic show on stage to entertain everyone. And I would be in the back of the room in a clown costume and makeup doing balloon animals for the kids. So I, would go, I went out every weekend, sometimes doing two shows a day doing balloon animals and stuff. And then the, the way it worked out was uh, at the end of you know New Year's rolled around and he said, okay, kid, I didn't think you are going to last, but a deal is a deal. You, you've been a good sport. You've done all this. Your fingers are raw from tying those damn balloons. Uh, you're out of breath from blowing up all those damn balloons. And here's your reward. Here's how to eat fire. And uh, he showed me this stuff. And then, I asked him how he learned it, where he got it from. And, you know, sideshow people and sideshow performers, people see and go, I wanna learn that, teach me how to do it, teach me how to do it. And they don't, I approached it with such respect. I wanted those stories. I wanted to know who was the first guy to do this kind of stuff. Where did this all come from? Where did you learn it from? Where have you done this? And because I did that, even though I, wasn't running off and joining a uh, traveling sideshow. I got entree to the world because I, I approached it with respect. And when he taught me what he could, uh, and he said, you know, this guy I know who does some of the, the pain-proof stuff, would you like to learn how to do that too? And, yeah, sure. So he introduced me to another friend who, who did, had, you know, did the Human Pincushion Act, which I never really liked doing. Uh,
0: and I I can't imagine why. Yeah. Well, you know,
2: uh, there there are a lot of people doing it, uh, and, and taking it to real extremes. Uh, and, but he did teach me how to stick my hand into an animal trap and have it snap shut on my hand and not, not, you know, leave me with the nickname Stumpy for the rest of my life. So, uh, the, the end result is, uh, you know, I, little by little, I started meeting a handful of these guys and learning all what's known as the working act. They're basically three sh- three acts in the sideshow, three classifications. There's the true freaks, which are people born different. Uh, again, as we mentioned, there's sort of the royalty. Then there's the self-made freaks, the tattooed men and women and people like that that have done something to themselves uh, to set themselves apart. And then there's the working act the people average joes that have learned skills and that's where i kind of fall in so i you know learned sword swallowing and fire eating and and blockhead and things like that uh and i didn't really do them didn't really perform them when i was a kid um mainly because there was a book on fire eating that was just kind of creeped me out as a kid it was a decent little book I, I just came across it uh, a, a copy of it uh recently and i bought it because it just when i saw it it just you know flooded memories and it it not only had how to do various things but it had all these pictures of an australian bodybuilder who did this living statue act fire eating and it was this you know from the 1960s there's this, this bodybuilder, all oiled up with grease, slick back hair, eating fire, wearing this little tiny uh, spangled G string. And I went, is that how you have to do this stuff? I don't, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Well, I guess that's the uniform. Yeah. This this does not appeal to me whatsoever. So I learned all those skills, but I kind of gravitated towards comedy magic and, and doing that sort of thing. And then it was many years later uh, when I moved to New York in the early 80s and there was this new thing called MTV had started up and they had some sort of a uh, talk show variety show. I don't even remember what it was, but they wanted something unusual. So I remit, I worked up sticking my hand into an animal trap. And I did that on the show. And then I put that in Mac. I was like, hell, I you know, found this damn trap. Uh, and Uh, I've worked it up, so I'm gonna put it in. So I would do like a card trick and say, that was a trick, but this isn't. I'd set up the trap and do it. And then people would come up afterwards and go, well, that had to be a trick. You can't really do that. And I go, no, it's real. And they go, how is that possible? And what it demonstrated to me was this kind of material instilled in people a, a deeper, more profound sense of amazement than tricks because there's a wall with magic. That I can't tell you how it's done, but when sideshow stuff, the more you know, the more intriguing and fascinating it becomes. Uh, the, the 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 whys and hows of it uh, are often more entertaining than the just the presentation of it, and so that's what just pulled me in was. Doing the stuff, understanding the culture, where it all came from, and just pulling it all in, not from an intellectual uh, point of view, but just giving context. And I went off and did comedy clubs and did colleges and universities with all the sideshow material. And then in 1992, the sideshow on Coney Island, which had been resurrected about seven years before, uh, there had been sideshows out in Coney Island since the turn of the century, uh, turn of the 20th century, but they had basically all died out in the 1970s. In 1985, a guy had uh, a small theater company out there called Coney Island USA. His name was Dick Ziggin, and he hooked up with a sideshow showman named uh, um, John Bradshaw. Thank you, thank you, John Bradshaw. And Bradshaw came off the road and started performing in Coney Island and he brought in a bunch of his old sideshow folks, including a man named Melvin Burkhart. And the uh, end result was uh, they brought the sideshow back to Coney Island. And then after, in 1991, Bradshaw decided to kind of not come back to Coney Island and Dick Ziggin decided to run it on his own and needed performers and took out an ad in the Village Voice newspaper, which I saw and went, oh, I you know I could do that and this you know I'm doing this stuff in the colleges and making good money but if I I need street creds I need to work a sideshow and there was only two left there was Ward Hall out on the uh, great old showman uh, out on the carnival and there was Coney Island and then I liked the idea of sleeping in my own bed and not setting up a tent every day and moving from place to place to place so uh, yeah that can always be a plus yeah so I ended up uh, hooking up with Coney Island. And uh, being part of that whole scene, which is filled with so much heritage and traditions and wondrous, uh, wondrous history. so the uh, And I've sort of been associated with them ever, ever since. I've only worked a couple of seasons out there, but I'm sort of a, still a general practitioner when they need some, some, uh, someone to fill in, they can give me a call and I go out there. And this last season, the last day of last year uh, in October, uh, I took my son, Finn, who was 11 years old, and he had learned how to hammer a nail into his nose and walk over broken bottles in his bare feet. And the two of us worked the sideshow of the last day, uh, their father and son. So uh, anyway, that's that's sort of my uh, you know history of the whole thing, almost in real time. <laughs>
0: and I can actually picture you as the proud, beaming father saying, look at my boy walk across that broken glass. Yeah
2: yeah and you know and uh it, the, the fun thing about it that you know when he would do it he would he would do the whole thing and then he does it and he would jump up and down on the glass and then i'd say now floss and he would do the backpack kid dance on and it would kill the audience because all of a sudden it was this kind of very foreign thing strange exotic and now they could all relate to it and it got a big laugh and and <laughs> Made it a little bit more memorable and relatable for the uh, the kids in the audience. So,
0: all right. So at eleven, he's walking across the broken glass. Has he started
2: eating it yet? I mean, have you fed him any light bulbs? No, not not yet. Yeah, uh, I keep saying next year. Next year we'll do sword swallowing. Next year we'll do fire eating. Next year we'll do glass eating. I keep kind of putting the the real dangerous uh, uh, stuff off. Uh, sword swallowing is difficult. Fire eating is. Uh, not as difficult, and glass eating is the easiest of them all, but the most dangerous, because once you swallow the glass, uh, it goes through the system for about two days. You have absolutely no control over it, and you're playing Russian roulette. And for for those who don't know what I'm talking about, there was an old act uh, that was known as the uh, human ostrich or the human garbage disposal, uh, and it was people that ate things. And they would often eat, you know, lit matches and cigarettes, and would also break a light bulb or bite into a light bulb uh, and chew on the glass and swallow it. And I learned how to do this from a guy who did it for about 30 years. And uh, he showed me the ins and outs of it. And, you know, I've been doing it, I've eaten more light bulbs than anyone else, uh, I think, in the world. The the current number is somewhere around 5,000 light bulbs. and like I say, I it's one thing I don't really encourage anyone doing because you, everything else, there's technique to it. And if it starts to go wrong, if, the, if the, you know, you're outdoors and the wind is blowing and you're eating fire and it starts to go in the wrong place, the wrong, wrong time, you stop. And if you're swallowing a sword, but your throat is getting a little raw and it's tight, you stop. But glass, when you swallow it, you just hope for the best for the next two days.
0: Yeah, and speaking of the glass, sitting, there's a couple questions I have to ask you. Not, not the one you've been asked all the time about um, the uh, the pooping of glass, but...
2: Well, you, you want to talk roughage. Uh, broken glass. Let, 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 me, let me just put it to you this way. Uh, One light bulb is not a real problem, and I've done that in a number of different shows, theater shows, and it's not a problem. You take some precautions. The things I eat every day uh, and things I eat before the show, and there's also a diet and regimen I go through every day that keeps it all moving through my system. Uh, However, when you're out in Coney Island, you're eating light bulb after light bulb after light bulb, and sometimes doing seven shows a day or sometimes even more. and it, it takes its toll. I basically, there's, without being too indelicate, there's no porcelain left on my toilet bowl. It's been sort of sandblasted away. I think that's enough image for you right there. But uh, yeah, and you know, it is this, I'm not the first. The, the good thing about it is because people haven't seen this uh, done. It seems so novel. It's to, and to many people, they just they just dismiss it. They go, oh, it's got to be candy glass. And no, it's not. And so, therefore, part of the act is going to great lengths to to prove to everyone the reality of what they're experiencing. Because if they just dismiss it, then I'm risking my life for no damn good reason.
0: Uh, <laughs> you no, know, what I was going to ask was, when when you had your first colonoscopy, did your did your doctor faint?
2: No, what well, the, the the funny thing is that uh, when I had the the colonoscopy, also, they also did endoscopy, uh, and I got talking to the doctor and said, you know, I'm a sword swallower, and he went, oh, you know, endoscopy was developed in the 1920s with the help of a sideshow sword swallower. I said, really? He said, yeah, because in those days. There was the little camera that they had that they used was on the end of a stick. And they would have to, you know, anesthetize and intubate someone, and they could only do it once. But they brought in a sideshow sort of, and I used to have the name, I can't remember the name offhand, of the guy, and he could do it over and over again with ease, and they could refine the technique for endoscopy. So much so uh, when i told her about doing that he went okay great we don't have to intubate you That's, that makes it a lot easier so i so though the the lower half there was uh, it was anesthetized um when they did the endoscopy i just swallowed the thing down and the staff there the doctor was laughing because he knew what to expect but he, when they handed it to me i go oh you mean like this and I, i'm going down and and they're like they'd never you know they'd done hundreds of these and no one was awake doing it and and he's pointing to things and he's showing me on the screen goes oh that's kind of interesting and he he, you know pulled out he said yeah everything looks good the stomach looks good he said there's a there's a little scarring on the the esophagus Go, yeah I I swallowed a sword uh, in Wichita, Kansas one night and the the throat uh, seized up on me and I pulled it out and it was basically, it was like taking a butter knife and putting it in your fist and tightening the fist around a butter knife and pulling it out. And he went, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, You're fine. And again, the staff is about to pass out and we're having this this casual conversation about, you know, sword swallowing gone wrong. But... uh, uh yeah yeah it's yeah everything is is very happy down there and the irony of it is uh there was a writer for um the new yorker who saw a show i did off broadway that was called carnival knowledge which was all about my experience in the side show and i did all the acts and stuff and the writer was convinced that that glass eating was fake So he brought in the head of gastroenterology for New York, New York university hospital. And he was going to bust me. He was going to, you know, the doctor would know that this is all fake. It's gotta be fake. And I sat down and I laid out everything. I did it for the doctor and I laid out everything um, that I do. And he went, wow, this is, this is actually very sound. the, the, The precautions you take, I should, I should really recommend some of these to my patients. Like, ah, so the sideshow geek is teaching the doctor. Fine. Where do I send the bill, Doc? Uh, and the the piece is written with a little bit of of, of sourness, the disappointment that he couldn't bust me because it, it's real. Uh, the upside of it is, I got a gig out of it, and that I was the after dinner act at the National Gastroenterology Society uh-huh. the next year. So, at this very Tony upscale uh, um, hotel uh, in the in the uh, the grand ballroom there, and they had all these people. And I got up afterwards and and swallowed swords and ate glass uh, for their entertainment. So, so there you go. It, 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 that's the thing. You, you never know what what's this is going to lead to. Who's going to be interested in all that? Absolutely, you never know who's going to be in the audience. It's true. It's true. Well, that that's how the you mentioned uh, on the DVD of, of Freaks. Uh, after after one of the performances of that very show, a guy came up to me and said, "Hi, I'm working. I'm uh, for Turner Media, and we're going to be." Uh, releasing the DVD of Freaks, and we're thinking about doing a um, companion video that will give all the background and history of the the sideshow performers in this, and would you do commentary? And I went, ah, okay, it's an iconic film, and this thing is going to be around long after I'm gone, yeah, I'm there, I'm there. And by the way, do you know this person, and this person, and this person, and this person, uh, who were either you know know the guy who was the the biographer of todd browning do you know this guy from the sideshow who worked with all these people do you know and so i kind of hooked them all up uh and helped uh kind of make that all happen so that's like i say you never know uh what what it's going to lead to but it's always been interesting
0: yeah you know i am a complete and total film buff and history film history buff and um of all the DVD releases of these classic films, that is probably the single best bonus feature I've ever seen put on one of these releases.
2: Well, you know, the, the fun thing about it is there's, um, there's very little academia in that it is. Uh, and even, uh, uh David skull who wrote the biography wrote it with such understanding and appreciation, uh, and no agenda of, of telling anything other than the real story that it, 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 rings true. It rings solid as opposed to uh, the, this is what I've read. And this is, you know, looking at uh, historical records, like, no, this, this is the reality. This is, we're talking from experience here of what life in the sideshow is all about.
0: Plus that and the film was filled with so many top level. I mean, you know, a list sideshow performers. Yeah. I believe it's mentioned in, in that that uh, it's hard to imagine one show having that many star performers. No, no.
2: It was, uh, well, you know, uh, yes and no. Uh, when Ringling Brothers, as I mentioned earlier, played Madison Square Garden, they augmented their traveling sideshow with uh, the performers from the Dreamland sideshow out in Coney Island, which was the, the flagship sideshow out there so when you look at this picture it is a who's who of the sideshow and uh that performed there for that month and a half that they was uh performing at Mass square garden and many of these performers you look at them and ended up in uh in the uh, uh the movie freaks so it, it, it that's about the closest the reality uh, of that uh the freaks you know, the cast from freaks uh, and the fictional sideshow that's depicted there. I guess we, you know we were supposed to talk about history and I kind of yammered on about my own history. Maybe it would be good to spend maybe it'd be good that's to spend oh maybe it would be a kind of good to talk a little about the actual history of how this all came about. Uh, the, the sideshow sort of grew out of what was known as dime museums and where these were sort of cabinets of curiosity. Originally, they there would be, uh, you know, wealthy people, upper class people uh, in in uh, Europe. They were the, some of the aristocracy that would collect things on their travels around the world, and have this amazing uh, collection of flora and fauna, uh, taxidermy and relics and things like that. And the problem was. Though they would have money, they would have children, and their children would have children. And, and after a while, the fortune got spread out, and all that was left was this, this dusty old collection. And so someone got the idea of, well, let's let people take a look at it and charge them for it. And that was exciting. They, uh, they, there was Scudders and Peel, uh, Scudders Museum and Peel's Museum. Uh, and the problem was that people would come and look at it, And once he'd seen it, there was no reason to see it again. Uh, And then in the 1840s, one of these collections was bought by a man named Phineas Taylor Barnum, who was the greatest showman, but not the greatest showman as that friggin' movie shows. Uh, His, I mean, that... No, it's
0: okay. I'm with you on that movie.
2: Uh, you know, I'm I'm glad it, it was a success, as much of a success it was, but it had nothing to do with Barnum's life whatsoever, other than the names, some of the names that were used. Uh, it was just a, it was laughable. And, you know, as a movie, I, I don't want to go into all of that. Uh, it, it, it just seemed like a two-hour Super Bowl commercial. It was all just glitz and flash and, and had no substance and truth whatsoever. But anyway... Uh, Barnum himself was a remarkable man who innovated so many things. He, he changed marketing as we know it. He, he created the idea of branding because he put himself first when presenting things, not out of ego, but understanding that the, the name Barnum needed to mean something so that when you encounter the name Barnum, it had a lean in factor. Whatever he was presenting, you wanted to know more about it, and that was just a remarkable thing. So, he bought this, this collection and then realized he needed people to come back more than once. So, the idea of adding in live performers, uh, and all kinds of, of live uh attractions and rotating attractions, so that there was always he created the idea of new and improved so and there was a a theme that that went out uh, that if you hadn't seen barnum's museum lately you haven't seen barnum's museum because there was something there that make you want to come back and he would get the money from the same people over and over again and that's a significant uh, development so he had the museum there the american museum down lower manhattan and ann street and broadway uh until the, the middle 19 or 1860s uh, it burned down he then had a second museum slightly uptown because the city manhattan was developing and uh life was moving uptown so he had one uh in the soho district he went in partners with a, another showman had a second museum that burned down and he decided he'd made his money and it was time to retire but show business wasn't finished with him. He had such a reputation by that time. In the 20-some years that he had been, almost 30 years, he had been uh, presenting the strange and unusual, bizarre and unconventionally beautiful. Uh, that A circus uh, owner came to him, a man by the name of W.C. Coop, and said, uh, can we use your name for our circus? And those days, circuses were pretty disreputable. They were small, fly-by-night operations that often uh, left towns with unpaid bills and broken hearts of young girls uh, who had been seduced by the uh, the people working in the circus. And also, there was gambling behind the tent, and they would, you know, take the town's money. So they had to get out by night uh, to escape all this, and and it was just very disreputable. So Barnum made some insistence that if he was going to put his name on it it had to be up to his standards so he instead of just licensing his name he wanted to be part of it and he changed the industry and the first show he took out was this huge massive traveling thing that had like six tents to it it had the main tent it had a menagerie it had what we think of as the sideshow with very strange and usual performers. There was a tent that had just you know exotic plants from around the world. There was another tent that had statuary uh, from ancient civilizations. Uh, and the problem was the, the plants were dying. Uh, and the statues were heavy and getting broken. So after a while, they got rid of that. And this kept a menagerie because those animals were being used in the main show and the sideshow, which was great because people would come out early and there was extra money to be made from people buying a separate ticket to see uh, the Freaks' Wonders and Human Curiosities. So he kind of created the idea of the traveling sideshow. There had there, been some earlier versions of it. Barnum was the one that really put it on a high level and made it a real feature. And so the circus went along very nicely. And then in 1893, there was a World's Fair in Chicago. And in addition to all the pavilions uh, showing all innovations and cultures from around the world, they realized it was a little bit dry and they needed a little something more. So they had the uh, Midway Plaisance, this, this alleyway, Large alleyway with all these pavilions from various places around the world, uh, and various acts and attractions. Uh, and it it what attracted people. It made people uh, come uh, to see the uh, uh, the the. It made the the World's Fair, the Columbian Exposition of eighteen ninety three, a success. And then after that, a number of these independent. Uh, showman said, "You know, if we all got together, maybe we could travel around with this, and we could add in a few of these, you know, a merry-go-round, and maybe we can get George Washington Ferris to build one of his wheels that they had there, but a smaller version of it that we can travel around with this Ferris wheel, and we'll put those in the middle, and we do everything kind of an, a horseshoe, and we can have food and and." games up front and then the shows in the back, the side show, the illusion show. Uh, and they had, you know, an, it, in those days, they had an exotic show that was, was called the Streets of Cairo, which was featured belly dancing, which later became burlesque shows, traveling burlesque shows and strip shows that were on the carnival after the, the exoticness kind of uh, was stripped away, no pun intended. It was like, really what it's all about is, you know, giving daddy something to come to the carnival for. And the carnival was created. And that was all around, kind of came together in about 1899. And the sideshow was from that, from the very beginning. So then you had, and then the, about the same time, uh, a guy named George Tillieu took some land out in Coney Island and added in various attractions uh, and created what we now know as an amusement park. And that he was followed suit by uh, a couple other parks out there. Uh, uh, Luna park followed, and steeplechase park called that because it had a, a ride from England. There was mechanical horses that ran a race uh, over hill and Dale up and down. Uh, and that was called the steeplechase ride. And this became steeplechase park based upon that. Cause it ran around the, the outskirts of the, uh, uh, the perimeter of the park. And then uh, Luna Park, two uh, theatrical producers, uh, Thompson and Dundee, uh, created this wonderful park uh, called Luna Park. And then uh, that was 1903 and 1904. There was a place called Dreamland, which looked very much like the old Chicago World's Fair. Everything was white buildings and very pristine and, and had all kinds of attractions and interesting things. Um, and the museum park as we know it came into to be. And part of that was the sideshow, you No know, two ways about it. Um, one little story that people don't know about is that you've heard the term ballyhoo. And we haven't, when we say ballyhoo, we think about, you know, the bluster and, and kind of noise and, and uh, things to attract attention. And where it comes from is that Chicago World's Fair of 1893. There was a, a, a pavilion there called the Streets of Cairo, and it was this Egyptian show that was put on. They had a whirling dervish that would spin around, and had a band that played uh, Egyptian music. And two things that came out of that that were significant was they had a performer there known as Little Egypt who did a thing called a belly dance. Uh, they referred to it as the hoochie. And that was so scandalous. Uh, she moved parts of her body that women did not move during the Victorian era. And... Causing men's bodies to move
0: parts they didn't mean to move in that era.
2: It, it, yes. And the end result was that uh, people flocked to see that dance, and to attract attention to the pavilion because there was so much going on, there was so much activity, and to really kind of get the crowds in, the, the showman who was running it, a guy named W.O. Taylor, and how I know that name is, is another little story which I'll get to. W.O. Taylor would take the, the band and the whirling dervish uh, out onto the midway, right in front of the, the pavilion there, and have them play and dance around and people would gather around to see this little mini show. And uh, he would stand out and say, folks, this is a small taste of what's inside. You're also gonna see the young lady who's gonna you know, uh, do the dance. Um, yeah, do uh, the dance you've all heard about. She's gonna shake it east, she's gonna shake it west, but way down south, she shakes it best. You're gonna see little Egypt on the inside. Um, and people would then buy a ticket and come on the inside. So whenever you want to do one of these little, little shows out front to attract attention, he would say to the, the, the guy who was kind of his representative for all these Arabic performers, um, Middle Eastern performers, and he would say, get him out here, get him out here. And the guy would yell, dialahun, dialahun, which is Arabic for uh, hurry up, hurry up. And to W.O. Taylor's Western ears, he couldn't understand what he was saying. He thought he was saying ballyhoo. So whatever you want to do with these little performances out front to attract attention, he'd say, let's do some ballyhoo. Let's do some ballyhoo. And the other showman picked up on this term and the practice and also doing it and became this tradition and uh, the form and function in the carnival and circuses. And that's where the term ballyhoo comes from. I know it's W.O. Taylor that originated this because... Uh, a number of years ago, I was doing a show with a, a, a young female magician named Dania Taylor. And we met for the first time. And she said, oh, you know, it's so great because you, your whole background on the sideshow. And my grandfather or my great grandfather um, called the term Ballyhoo. And I thought, yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. Because I'd heard the story over and over, but I didn't know who this was. Uh, this was this is kind of unknown uh, sideshow Showman and uh, the went, yeah yeah sure and he she's yeah his name is W.O. Taylor and he ran the the Streets of Cairo uh, pavilion at the World's Fair and I was like Kunta Kinte I have found you uh, <laughs> this I'm like holy mo-. she said yeah you know he sat down in 1938 with a, uh, a social uh, anthropologist at Columbia university and did an interview and I've got a transcript of it if you'd like it. And yes, I would. And then I got on the phone and called all my circus and carnival historian friends and went W.O. Taylor, that's the guy, W.O. Taylor. We have a name now. Uh, and so it, again, one of these kind of freakish uh, in the best way possible kind of coming together and and putting a piece together there. Of how something that we all know, but doesn't didn't know the origin. So there you go. So that's worth the price of admission, right there. That you know, revelation.
0: I just love that that you had to call everybody to to share the news. Yeah, and, and there's just great groups of people that are still so fascinated and interested in in the true history of it, and then it still is a very communal environment. And mm-hmm. that there are people like, like yourself that, you know, keep this history and tradition going.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, it it's all the, the history and the, the culture of it is, is so fascinating. And, you know, it's one of these things of being born too late. Uh, because the, the golden age of the sideshow is 1920s. Uh, with all these grand and glorious carnivals that would travel by long, long railroad cars, railroad trains, that had their own private trains. Same thing with circuses like Ringling Brothers and all the others. And, and then there were all these the smaller ones also. Uh, and matter of fact, there was probably 300 side shows during its, its, its uh, heyday back in the 20s. And then the, the Depression came in, and then World War II, and, and it just became harder and harder, and so many of the shows died off. And also a lot of the old sideshow guys that kind of had gotten into the business were getting older. And, and there were easier ways of making, uh, making money. And unless it, it was passed down from father to son or father to daughter um, and kept in the family, there was not a younger generation that was coming up. And in 1946, there was a young man, 16-year-old man, Uh, who ran off with the circus. His name was Ward Hall. And he joined the Daily Brothers Circus. And he juggled and did some magic and walked up a ladder of swords and uh, met another performer named Harry Leonard uh, who taught him how to do magic and had Ward stand at a board while he threw knives around him. And they worked the sideshow. And after doing that for a couple of seasons, they decided to go in partnership and take out their own show. And Ward was in it for all those years in the 1940s, up until uh, he passed away about two years ago. Uh, And what happened was, as the old timers were getting ready to retire, Ward bought their shows and consolidated them. And, and, And he kind of regretted not keeping the shows out there and being his own competition, but he, he really kind of wanted to be the one and only, and he got that, unfortunately. And the industry started to change because circuses went into playing in arenas, and, it, and most arenas didn't have places uh, for a sideshow to set up. Uh, Madison Square Garden was one of the exceptions, and so you had these shows. And then the other thing is people weren't coming out and spending the day uh, on the the circus lot the way they used to. They would show up a half an hour before the show uh, and and park and go in. And so the sideshow wasn't making money because there wasn't the crowd there early enough for them to run multiple shows, multiple performances. Uh, And so circuses started dropping the sideshows. On the carnivals, they started getting more and more spectacular rides after World War II. Uh, rides that would throw you upside down and sideways and do all this. I and mean, what's in the industry is spectaculars. The real estate didn't change. The, the fairgrounds uh, didn't expand to add these. So they had to put them somewhere. And they started looking around. And they realized they could make an investment in one of these rides, which are lovingly referred to as pig iron in, in the industry. Uh, and they'd get one of these rides and they could hire someone to run it. Uh, it's someone to take tickets and one guy to run maintenance on all the rides or they could have a sideshow which have maybe a dozen performers and workers in the same amount of space and they all eat and one carnival showman who owned a carnival said I want a midway where nothing eats and he got it and he set standard for the industry so that when you go on to a carnival now it's all rides it's it's there's food joints there's still games and rides, but there are no, very few live shows. There are a couple of motor out there, which is people riding motorcycles around what looks like a giant wine bath riding around uh, perpendicular on the walls. They're exciting, exciting show. Uh, noises all get out too. And a couple of grind shows, little singlos that'll have the you know, world's smallest woman or the world's biggest cow or as an illusion like a snake girl or a headless girl. But that's about all you're going to see these days, uh, except for uh, the World of Wonders. Ward's show is still out there. One of my, I started up a sideshow school in Coney Island back in the uh, 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 two thousands, two thousand and one, uh, and trained a bunch of uh, new new generation of performers, and one of them. Hooked up with Ward Hall and became his protege. And uh, Ward ended up selling the show. And his name is Tommy Breen, and he's still taking the World of Wonders out. Uh, and it's really about the last full time traveling sideshow left uh, in the United States. So it's, and then Coney Island, being uh, this season, you know, nothing, no one's doing anything uh, this year. Everything, you know, everyone's just kind of waiting around to see what's going to happen. Uh, you know, a plague does that. And uh, yeah, even the geeks need to self quarantine, yeah. So we'll see what happens with the future, and it may all be uh in the past tense as of next year.
0: You know, you'd said earlier that um, you're born in the wrong time, and and I, and I kind of have to disagree with you. I, I for one, am thankfully, were born in this time because without you and people like you keeping this history and tradition alive, teaching the next generation about it, eh, you know it would be a completely and totally lost art form,
2: a lost part of Americana. Well, and, you know, let's do a more mutual appreciation society here. Uh, I appreciate that, you know, someone finds this interesting and wants to put it in a form where other people can have access to all this stuff. So I thank you for allowing me to come on here and uh, tell lies for the last uh, hour and a half. Yeah, lies and deception, folks, except the glass-eating that part's true. It's a badass. That's true. Yeah. It's 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 funny. I, I said to Ward, uh, every once in a while, I'd, I, we'd get together. Uh, they'd come, they used to play the Meadowlands Fair at, in New Jersey, and I'd go and I'd hang out there. And I'd say things to him. Every once in a while, I'd go, well, that's good. I'm going to steal that from you. Like, I'm, I'm honored. The, the, the last of the, you know, the great showmen. And, I, I gave him you know, something that he used, which is, you know, half of what you're going to see is real and half of what you're going to see is fake. Now, the irony of it is that what you think is real is probably fake and that which is fake is probably real. Now, we're not going to tell you which is which. You have to figure it out for yourself. And that's part of the fun. Buy your ticket and head in now and see the big show on the inside.
0: In an hour and a half is nothing for me because I'd be willing to listen to you, you know, all day and all night go on about this. This is just so You know, so fascinating to me. Uh, In fact, I want to know now if you'd be willing to come on again.
2: Yes. Oh, sure. Uh, We we can talk about, you know, one of my other passions is raising the dead for fun and profit. Spiritualisms, uh, seances, (gasps) and ghosts and things like that. Things that will send a chill up and down your spine. Yeah, I love
0: all that. Absolutely. Oh yeah, we could talk about one of my
2: other favorite topics in history, uh, the great Harry Houdini. Yes, yeah. Uh, and Houdini was just such an, uh, a remarkable man, and and again, mi- and and you know, and misunderstood, and very much misunderstood. Uh, he, everyone thinks of him as the great debunker, and yet he was just trying to clear the field to find the real thing. It, it came very much out of a desire to make contact with his dead mother and find the person that could do that and just became embittered by the fact that all he found were frauds that were preying upon the, uh, the loss of others. But that's another story. Uh, so. No, before
0: you go, there's a couple things I'd really, uh, like to hit
2: on. Yeah. It's
0: really a sign of how respected you are in this little fraternity of, sideshow people and sideshow performers that when the legendary uh, melvin burkhart passed away his family sent you his props uh, which has to be like the ultimate compliment to to a performer but they respected and trusted you so much they also sent you melvin
2: Uh, Yes. The context for people who don't know, Melvin Burkhardt was a guy who took a torture act from the fakirs of India. uh, And the act was the ability to hammer a nail into one's nose. And he took this and turned into this joyously gut wrenching act filled with jokes uh, that would make people laugh and take the stink off of the horrific visual of, of what he was doing and made it entertaining for all audiences and besides that he was not only an innovator but he was also a gloriously wonderful man uh, and just so so much a gentleman so such a class act and it was an honor to know him and his last performance his last performance, uh, his last performance uh, was uh, on uh, October. 8th, 2001, uh, and that was our wedding. He performed at our wedding, and then he passed away a month later. And again, sorry about the dogs, the Pomeranians of the apocalypse here are getting quite excited. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, um, and the end, end result was uh, a couple weeks after he passed away, his widow, Joyce, and his daughter, Bonnie, sent me a package with all of his props and his costume. And then a couple weeks after that, I got Melvin. He was cremated, and he he always said, listen, when I die, when I die, I'm die, i dead. I don't care. I don't want a funeral. I don't want a memorial service. I don't want to be buried. I don't care. Just, you know, cremate me and do whatever you want. And they didn't know what to do really with him. So, excuse me. Buster. Buster. Stop it. Uh, they didn't really know what to do with him. So uh, the end result was uh, they sent him to me, and on what would have been uh, February 17, 2002, what would have been his 95th birthday. I went out to the, um, here in Coney Island, Dick Zigan from sideshows by the seashore at the last full sideshow he had worked and his career and we, uh, sprinkled the ashes into the ocean. So he is, uh, forever engaged out in Coney Island playing uh, open engagement out there for the rest of eternity. Um, and yeah, you know, it's just an honor to know these people. And when they, you know, show respect uh, to me, I, it means just the world because I have uh, nothing but respect for uh, who they are. And they're just, yeah, they're people that, that they didn't get rich, uh, but they added so much to the world as performers, as, sh- as showmen and brought such joy and so, you know, anything I can do to honor memory uh, is is what it's all about.
0: You know, I saw in the documentary that you're a cigar smoker as well, and uh, I am a big time cigar smoker. So, you know, you gotta you gotta come up to Buffalo. I'll take you to my favorite cigar lounge, and uh, we will just talk history aside show for, for hours and hours and hours.
2: Oh, uh, well, there you go. I mean, I, 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 there's, I, my bag is packed and I'm walking out the door. Uh,
0: <laughs> I, actually in all seriousness, have you been to uh Buffalo Niagara Falls area?
2: Yeah. I, you know, I haven't been up there uh, a long time. Uh, last time I was up there, I visited right before they closed everything down and shipped it off the QRS player piano roll company. And it was the last of the old player piano roll manufacturers it still exists but they moved it into pennsylvania but they had the original building up in buffalo there where the piano rolls those paper rolls that were you know put into mechanical pianos and reproduced music uh and some some of the greats of popular music of the early 20th century not only their songs that they composed, but also they played these, they recorded these rules, and they were, uh, and QRS was up there for decades and decades and decades and decades and it had all the original equipment and everything. And so I, I don't remember why I was up there, but I, I made a trek there and got a tour of the place uh, and seeing it all before it was all closed down because it was one of these diminishing uh, it, it, you know, industries, very much like the sideshow that, it kind of at the tail end of it all um so the the, the end result is uh i've always uh, like i say i'm fond of uh of buffalo and i will get up there one day i i've got to get up uh to visit probably not this season but to visit Lilydale which is south of buffalo there uh and it is uh, one of the oldest uh, uh spiritualist communities uh where you still can have people talking to the dead and uh performing seances uh, there on uh, Casadega Lake there. So I, I like to get up there every once in a while and just kind of take in that remarkable scene that uh, hasn't changed uh, for 100 years.
0: You know, you also got to get up to this area to see the uh, the birthplace of the carousel in the home of the Carousel Museum, as well as the uh, the Wurlitzer factory, Wurlitzer organs.
2: Yes, North Tornowanda there and, you know, all that, yeah. So there's more than enough reason to uh, come north to Buffalo. So I w-
0: and it may not be as tasty as light bulbs, but I will take you out for the best wings you will ever have. I,
2: oh, please, Anchor Bar, please, please, please. I-
0: anchor Bar, no, Duff's, Duff's wings.
2: Well, I yeah, I know, but uh, but you know, you go to both. You got you got to go to both because you got to do the the tradition up there. And, and yeah, you go to both, but which one's better? uh i'm sorry you're breaking up here we're breaking up here i can't uh, i can't uh, I'm, I'm sorry I the connection is bad. i like oh yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna take a side forget about that
0: please 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 oh lord knows i'll take a side yes plus i keep hoping if i keep pumping up duff so much on the show that they'll eventually just start giving
2: me free food yeah rightfully so yeah t- you know tag them and all the other uh, stuff that you do online and um
0: yeah i definitely will um but yeah speaking of cigars I, I noticed that you were a cigar smoker uh what is your uh cigar of choice
2: right now uh, boy um i you know i like my cigars like i like my women a mild and cheap um but uh you know they, there's there's a number of them and of course the easiest to find are uh, parthagas uh, Macanudo, because they're so mass produced. But there's a wonderful uh, La Gloria Cubana is uh, down in Miami. It was a bunch of uh, expatriate uh, Cubans that had this wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, tobacco mix and inexpensive. They had a little shop, little little factory and a little tiny shop. Uh, and you would, they weren't available except you had to go in there. Now they've kind of gone, their reputation is so great. And they have a factory in the, uh, um, um, where, where is it? And Dominican Republic that they produce stuff. But the stuff down in Florida there is just, just magical. Uh, and it was, uh, this kind of it ends on a bit of a little sour note from, uh, but I was in, um, a cigar bar here in New York and in walked the then mayor of New York, Rudy Giuliani. And I'm sitting at the bar and he's kind of glad any people and he goes, what are you smoking? I said, well, Gloria Cabana, you know, I invent reasons to go down to, to Miami just to get their cigars.
1: Uh-huh.
2: So that's my, my sole bond with Giuliani. And that's as far as it goes. But, uh, i tell you you get to buffalo i'll take you to an
0: amazing uh cigar lounge and you won't have to worry about giuliani coming in
2: beautiful beautiful i look forward to shuffling off and coming up there
0: and, and i know we've kept you so long and i apologize but i'm just I, like i said before i'm, I'm a big fan and I, I really cannot thank you enough for coming on the show oh my pleasure
2: my pleasure uh and you know another th- uh, if you haven't uh, hooked up with uh, the guy who has the the current publisher of the National Police Gazette. You should probably do that. He's in Binghamton, New York. And if you know anything about the National Police Gazette, he was the first great sporting paper. and
0: Ah, yeah, the predecessor to the Ring Magazine, which is
2: the oldest
0: uh, sports publication in the U.S., Yes. And yes, I'm a, I'm a boxing nut. Uh, in fact, that is uh, my, my, my main specialty in history and research is the, the history of boxing.
2: Yes, I know. I know you are. And, and Richard K. Fox, who was the publisher that, that took it to, didn't create the National Police Gazette, but he really uh, took it. It was like Barnum. He, he was made it into something of great renown. And, uh, you know, he was in a bar. Uh, Harry Hill's saloon in, in Manhattan, and there was this young uh, boxer that had just come over that uh, he wanted to meet, and he said to a waiter, please tell that man over there, come over here, I'd like to buy him a drink. And the waiter went over and said, uh, Mr. Mr. K. Fox would like uh, you to come to his table. And the, the boxer said, well, if Mr. Fox wants to meet John L. Sullivan, he can come to me. And it started a rivalry that made Fox bring over the best boxers in the world to beat this guy and put him in his place, and he couldn't. And so apparently, like a 10 or 15 years later, finally, and they met in a similar kind of place, and Richard K. Fox got up from his table and went over to John L. Sullivan and, and shook his hand, and they uh, they became friends thereafter. So... Uh, yeah the the police Gazette is a, a wonderful story of, of so much of what we know is sort of tabloid uh news and sporting news and and there would be no playboy magazine and that side of entertainment if it was not for the salaciousness that was in that publication first and foremost but anyway that's that's all another discussion
0: for another day oh, and we can have definitely have that discussion another day in fact any day. Any day you want to come on the show, any topic you want to talk about, you just let me know and we will definitely have you back on.
2: Absolutely.
0: You got it. You got it. Love it. Thank you so much.
1: That's okay.
0: You too. Take care.
1: Good night. Bye. Good night.
0: Cheers. Good night. All right, Lauren, what did you think?
1: That was amazing. I really enjoyed it. And I really do think we should have him back on to discuss spiritu- spiritism. Maybe?
0: Oh, God, absolutely. Absolutely. We'll bring him back on.
1: Maybe. Kurt from the Stranger Things background.
0: Stranger Things? Uh, Did did you mean the Strange Sessions with Kurt?
1: Oh yeah, I'm thinking of the, I'm thinking of the Netflix show, the Strange Sessions.
0: Oh yeah, it's pretty obvious you're still babysitting the nephews if you're thinking about the the Stranger Things.
1: Yes.
0: Oh, yeah, we'll definitely have Todd back on. And, and you know, in a, in a way, I kind of feel bad that neither of us said too much. But, I mean, I was just enjoying listening to him so much, I just wanted to sit back and listen.
1: Yeah, it was just so... It was really bad, but just nice to sit back and listen.
0: Uh, and we have another show to do tomorrow. We do. Indeed, yes. Well, then, I guess uh, at this point... Uh... We better just call it a show for now, and we'll talk again tomorrow night, Lauren. So, from Brian in New York.
1: And Lauren in Swansea. Good night. Good night. I'm lucky because I'm in Wales.